Well, good morning, Parkview. Uh, my name is Doug, and I have the privilege of uh, being one of your pastors. And I primarily serve over at East Campus, and it is a joy to be able to be here with you this morning. And uh, yeah, I just want to say it's, it's good. I've missed a, a lot of your faces. I haven't been here for a while. And while it's been fun sort of focusing the last couple of months over at East and Faith Academy, um, I've missed you all. So it's good to be back. I'm excited for Pastor Mark. Mark does a wonderful job here every Sunday. You guys have a wonderful pastor, um, and he loves you well. He loves you well. So if you normally uh, attend East and you're just maybe poking into Central this morning and you are totally disappointed that I'm here, I'm so sorry, all right? Um, we are doing things just a little different with this series uh, uh, during the Advent season. We've left the book of Acts, as you may know, and um, we are uh, sort of highlighting a handful of really Christmas passages and uh, kind of what we're exploring together is what are the implications, what are the significance, how does cr the reality of Christmas make a real difference for you and for me and our life. And so I have the wonderful joy of preaching to you out of John chapter 1. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. And so as Michael read our text for us this morning, you'll be really helped if you have God's Word just open in front of you on your device or in your lap, in your hands. And we're going to sort of zoom in on verses 9 through 13. I just want to read those verses one more time, okay? This is God's Word. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those verses are unbelievably good news for us. I don't know about you, but I have, well, I, I think I do know about you a little bit. I have a need, a desire to belong, to sort of fit in, as it were. I can remember the first time that I went to a bubble tea, I don't know what you call them, place where they sell bubble tea. I heard of this beverage. Um, I had no idea what it was. So I walked in, and as I you know, sort of surveyed my surroundings. I glanced at the menu. Everything appeared to be a totally different language. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I stood there for a few minutes, acted as if I forgot something, and then left. <laughs> While I was standing in that restaurant, whatever it was, I felt totally out of place. Now, luckily, I was able to Build up the bravery, go back in and taste it. It's wonderful stuff. You should try it. It's great stuff. But for a moment, I felt as if I did not belong, and it was a problem. I don't know if perhaps you can relate. If you've ever found yourself in a similar situation, in a similar setting, where you feel as if you don't belong. Belonging is, as it were, sort of a, it is a, a primary human need. 
beyond food and shelter. Nothing promotes human flourishing. It could be argued like having a people and place of belonging. Research confirms that income level, marriage, children, and perceived security all pale in comparison to belonging and promoting sustained happiness. Maybe you've heard the expression before, as human beings, we long to belong. Well, the good news that comes to us this morning from John chapter 1 is that because of Christmas, you can belong to the family of God. Maybe you didn't hear what I just said. Because of Christmas, because of the reality that God took on flesh and invaded our reality, you and I can belong to the family of God himself. Can somebody say amen? That's good news. This is good news. This is amazing news. So this morning, as we look at these handful of verses, what I want to just point out is three things. First is the reality of the coming of light into the world. The reality of the coming of light into the world. Folks, this is good news for us this morning, that light was coming into the world. Yes, the light tells us in John, was in the world. Now, if you read the passage in its context, these first 18 verses in the first chapter of John serve sort of as the prologue of John's gospel. And if you read these verses in context, if you were to go on and read throughout the book of John, you would clearly see that when John says light, John is referring to Jesus himself. When the light was coming into the world, there's another way of saying Jesus touched down came into our reality. This is a wonderful description of who Jesus is. Notice John says he is the true light. The true light. The real light. Not real as opposed to false, but real as opposed to shadowy or insubstantial. He is the real light who stands out in a world that is filled with lesser lights. John says that he comes, this light comes into the world. In these five verses, this word world is repeated four times. As you read your Bible, you want to take a special notice of words that are repeated over and over and over again. And, and here, just a few verses, he says four times the world. It's very important that we notice that. Even more important to know that what he means when he says the world the, the word that's used here, cosmos, can have different meanings throughout the Bible. While it can mean simply all of the totality of created order, it can mean that for John throughout his writing, the term has a more specific meaning, a more narrow focus. Not simply just the universe in general, but rather the, the, the created order which stands in rebellion against the creator himself. There's this specific, unique focus when he uses this word on humanity. So, for example, when John says, many of us are familiar perhaps with John 3.16, when John says that God so loved the world, 
We are, as we read those verses, to be blown away not by the, the largeness of the world, but rather the badness of it. And as we reflect on that, then we are blown away by how much God loves us. The light, he says in verse 5, shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, as you read these first couple of verses, you might seem to think that there is a bit of a contradiction in what he says in verse 9 and verse 10. The light was coming into the world, says in verse 9, and in verse 10, he says, he was in the world. The Bible teaches that one of the unique features, one of the unique characteristics of God's nature is that he is both transcendent and he's also imminent. This is what makes God stand apart. His transcendence and his imminence. Divine transcendence. And the related Christian doctrines that while God is exalted in his royal dignity and exercises both control and authority in his creation, while he is transcendent, he is yet also very present, very active, especially in his people. In a personal intimate way. God is transcendent, yes, but he's also imminent. God has always been involved with his creation. Or to say it another way, the light was already in the world. God had already revealed himself before that first Christmas morning. He was present, active in the universe that he had made. He wasn't like an absentee landlord who just took off, you can never find, who's never around. He was actively there. He, he, his light was seen as he was the creator of the universe. You could see just by looking at his creation, God himself he revealed himself not just through his creation, the Bible says and shows us. He also revealed himself through his law. He's a God who spoke, who gave his people his word. And as you read his word, you get a sense of who, who God is. You get a sense of who he is, his character, his nature. Isaiah 42, 21 says that the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious to magnify his law, his word, and to make it glorious. His light could be seen by looking at, understanding, reading his word. The light was in the world. One of the ways that it could most clearly be seen, not just through his creation, not just by his word, but also, this is where it gets special, in his people. In his people. 2 Samuel 7.23 says, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. God could be seen. The light the reality of who God was, his glory, his beauty, his majesty, the way God had designed it, it could be seen simply by looking at his people, his chosen people. But this light, 
that was coming into the world. John says, was the true light. Notice that defining feature of this light. It was the true, the real, the genuine, the authentic. While there had been earlier disclosure of who God was that was sort of provisional or anticipatory, this light would serve as the ultimate self-disclosure of who God was. This light was true. It was unlike any light the world had seen before. This is the reality of the light coming into the world. Secondly, as John goes on, he also says, not just is this, is this, did this happen? Did the light invade reality? But also he shows us that there is, by nature, a particular way that people respond to the light. And so he goes on and lists sort of three different responses to the reality of the light coming into the world. Look it down and you see it in the second half of verse 10. Yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. In this, these verses, you see three different responses to the reality of the light coming into the world. The first sort of category of responses is that of the world. How does the world respond to the coming of the light, to the, the birth of Jesus, the reality of the incarnation? How does the world respond Again, there's a special focus on humanity here, all of humanity. He came to his creatures. How do they respond to the creator's presence among them? We told, we're told that they do not know him. Another way it could be said is they don't recognize him for who he is. They couldn't see him for who he is, the true light of the world who came to give life to everyone, real, lasting life. The world didn't recognize him. You know, a number of years ago, I was in college, and one of my favorites, I don't want to date myself too much here. Uh, my gray hair does enough of that, as it were. So uh, one of my favorite musicians was Victor Wooten. Victor Wooten is arguably one of the greatest bass players, at least that's alive today. Phenomenal bass player. And uh, he was performing at the IMU. I got a ticket to, at that time, he actually had a physical ticket. I went down to the IMU, got a ticket to his concert. I uh, was on my way to class and uh, stopped by, as I often did and still do, Cookies and More. Maybe some of you know the, the wonders of the Cookies and More and the Ped, Ped Mall there. Stopped by to get a cookie. And as I was standing in line, um, there was an individual who was directly ahead of me. And as I was looking at this individual, you see the back of him, Victor Wooten, a man of small stature, sort of long dreadlocks, and a very recognizable uh, individual. I, I began to think to myself, is Victor Wooten standing directly ahead of me at Cookies and More in Iowa City? Is this really happening to me? And sure enough, it was him. I was just, I knew it was him. And the minute he turned around with his chocolate chip cookie or three or four, I don't want to put him on blast too much here. He turned around with his cookies in his hand. I was like, I was like, 
Victor Wooten. He's like, yeah. Like this is, this is uh, hi. I'm just, I didn't know what to say. Just hi. I shook his hand. It was, it was great. I was like on cloud. It was on top of the world that day. It was amazing. And uh, th- th- as I was getting my cookie and checking out, I was thinking to myself, what an absolute tragedy. Victor Wooten, perhaps, I would say, yes, the world's greatest living bass player. Walking around Iowa City, incognito, completely unrecognized by most of Iowa City. No idea who he was, just walking through the ped mall. In, you could be going to class and you would maybe bump shoulders, run into the greatest living bass player. How unbelievable. How sad. How totally sad. Now the fact that people didn't recognize him for who he was did not change the fact that he was the greatest bass player, at least in my book. Didn't recognize it. But think of all the people who missed out on the joy of listening to him. Completely missed out on it because they didn't know. They couldn't recognize or identify him for who he was. That's the world's response to the light coming in. Not recognizing the light for who he is the creator of the universe, the savior of humanity. There's another group of people, as as tragic as that scenario is, there's another group of people who miss him for who he is. If you keep looking at the text, it says his own people. Now, in one sense, all of humanity could be called his own as he is their creator. They are made in his image. But this language, I believe, is more specific yet. It's a specific reference to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the people who he set apart from all the other people, all the the nation that he called his nation, his chosen people, the ones whom he called out from all the rest, his own people. The, The verse says that he came to his own his own people. In our, as we read this, it may seem like he's just repeating himself, but he's sort of getting at two different things. The idea in the Greek communicates his own being a focus on property, or even better yet, his own home. Emphasis, think place. To say he came to his own is to say he came home. For a home is where one belongs. At home, one can expect to be greeted a particular way with their family, to be received, to be welcomed just as they are. And this is how it should be. It's not always that way, but that's how it should be. And if anyone knows the pain of when that doesn't happen, it's Jesus. He came to his own place. He came to his own people. In many ways, verse 11 could be referred to and has been referred to as perhaps the saddest verse in the entire Bible. The light of the world, which comes to the world through love and comes to offer life, came to his own people. The very people who should have recognized him, who should 
have seen him and known who he was, who, who should have been expecting his arrival, his coming. The people who, who, who he was, who they were made for him. They should have welcomed him, embraced him. But instead, his own people reject him, mock him, act as if he doesn't belong. As you read this verse, it's sort of reminiscent of the, the great promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. The promise he's giving to Abraham, what he's calling Abraham to, is to, to, to put him in a particular place. And from him he would make a people, a great nation who would bless and make his name great among all the peoples. And here Jesus is coming to the place and the people where he should be received. Instead, he's rejected, unrecognized, mocked, eventually killed. You know, a number of years ago, a good friend of mine told me a story, a really sad story about sort of his childhood. He, he told me how um, growing up, he, he grew up in a difficult part of town. And um, as he would leave school, it was always sort of a race to get home. There was a group of students, kids that were always picking on him, bullying him, just making his life miserable. And so the, the walk between school and home was full of fear, afraid that they would catch him. And he told me this, this, this one day, he was a young boy in his elementary school, and he would just, he would, he would sneak out of school. He would look for the group of boys, and then he would just dart home. And he told me one day, he, he did what he normally does. And he, he made ground on the group that was sort of chasing him, trying to beat him up. And as he got closer to his home, he saw his, the door for his home in view. And as he, as he came upon the door, he did as he always did. He knocked on the door. He stopped. He knocked. He knocked. He knocked. He knocked. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. No one his mom was in there. And his mom sort of opened the door, still locked, saw the scene taking place, recognized that the only chance that he had at safety was if she let him in. But she also knew that he had to learn how to fight. So her response was she closed the door. And she forced him, and that decision forced him to fight, got the tar kicked out of him. But as he told me this story, I just became overwhelmed with the reality of the brokenness in our world. How sad, how devastating. The place where he was running to should have been a place where he found welcome, where he found comfort where he found safety and security. It should have been a place where he belonged. But instead, he was turned away. He was turned away. Perhaps some of you here today can relate to the experience of deep and real rejection. Somebody's rejected you that should have no business in doing so. Well, if there's anybody who can understand what you're going through, it's King 
Jesus because he came to his own. He came to the place and to the people where he should have been welcomed. But instead, the Bible says he was rejected. He was rejected. I hope the total irony of this, it should not be lost on us. Though he created the world, the world didn't recognize him. Though he came to his own people, who he chose, who he set apart, his own did not receive him. And then even more amazingly, God used humanity's rejection of his son as the means by which you and I can be accepted and received in his presence. It's through his rejection, it's through his pain, it's through his suffering that you and I have acceptance by God, that we can belong to the family of God. Folks, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. This is the story that God wrote. And there's a third group of people. It says, all who did receive him. Those, there are those who didn't recognize him. There are those who rejected him. And then there is a remnant. There is a group of people who do receive him. Look at verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. There, there's a group of people who recognize him for who he is. And rather than turning their back on him, we're told two things. First, that they receive Jesus. In other words, there were those who, who encountered Jesus and who, who, whom he gave himself to, and they welcomed him just as he is. They, they, they accepted him. They received him, all of Jesus. Not just the parts that were convenient, not just the aspects of his nature that made sense to them. Not just the parts that made them feel good about themselves. Not, not just the parts that made them feel safe. They, they, they received him for who he was. And the challenge is for us today as well, to receive Jesus just as he is. All of Jesus if he comes to us as Savior, we welcome his salvation. If he comes to us as healer, we welcome his healing. If he comes to us as a counselor, we welcome his wisdom, his counsel. If he comes to us as a king, then we welcome his authority and his rule over our life. John Piper has said that receiving Christ doesn't equal, as I think many of us think that it does, a peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims. That's not how the Bible defines welcoming Jesus. Sort of a peaceful coexistence. For the person who welcomes Jesus into their life, their whole world changes as it should because Jesus makes certain claims about himself. So they receive Jesus. Secondly, they believe in his name. This is closely related to the idea of receiving Jesus. 
Not, not only, this is not the only place in John's writing where he connects these two ideas, receiving Jesus and believing in his name. These two things are, are deeply connected. Believing in his name. Remember, in the Bible, the name is more than just a label. But, but rather, it speaks to the character of a person, the, the very person themselves. You could tour the book of John and learn more about what the author means when he says, believe in the name of Jesus. He tells us, in fact, this is the very reason why he's writing the whole book towards the end, is, is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. If you look at John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The question is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? He says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, oftentimes we can think that believing is just a matter of sort of, a, it's just an intellectual exercise. Rather, when we read about what believing is in the Bible, it's as if we are being satisfied with who Jesus is, that he becomes the nourishment that our soul craves, all satisfying bread of life, not just sort of a checklist of things that we intellectually agree with, but that we go to him as the source and being of all that we long for. Believing is a lot less like a bunch of doctrinal boxes one checks and more like a place that one goes to find life. So those are the three groups, the world, his own people, and then those who receive and believe in his name. Finally, what we'll consider is what is the result? See, the reality of light coming into the world, three responses to the reality of light coming into the world. What is the result of those who receive Jesus just as he is? Well, it's clear. Second part of verse 12. To those who receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. For those who receive him, who, who believed in his name, he gave, he gave. It, this is a gift. Those who believe in the name of Jesus, Jesus receive a supernatural gift. It's the gift of grace. A gift that is simply received by the open hands of faith. Not earned, not achieved, received. It's a gift. The right or the authority or the privilege to become the children of God. To be a part of his family. To have God as your father. Folks, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. What grace God has that he would welcome sinners and sufferers like you and me right into the family. Just the work of his grace. The, the end of the verse tells us that this is, this, you know, the Bible talks about being born again. The concept of adoption. This is not a natural birth. Who are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The point is, it's not a natural birth. Entrance into his family is not a natural birth. It's supernatural. It's the New Testament writers refer to this as the act of adoption. Paul says it clearly in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Now, there might be some of you today who have walked through the adoption process, and that's a way maybe that you've grown your family. And if you've got friends or people around you, you know that, that adoption, that process itself can be a pricey process. There's organizations, there's funds that are established to help families, knowing how costly it can be, to help make adoption affordable because it's pricey. It's an expensive thing. Likewise, spiritual adoption comes to us at a very high price. A price so steep that none of us are capable of pain. We are the spiritually adopted children of God, our Father. Only because Jesus Christ, our elder brother, has endured the wrath of God in our place, taken our sins on himself. That is how we gain entrance into the family of God. It is totally a gift. J.I. Packer is so helpful on this in his classic work, Knowing God. He says you could sum up Christianity in a phrase. What is Christianity? Knowing God as your father. In many ways, he says, you could judge a person's understanding of what it means to be a Christian by their understanding of what it means to be a child of God. To be able to call God dad. Packer claims that the revelation of God as father is in a sense the climax of the Bible itself. In the Old Testament, if you were to trace throughout the Old Testament and discover how God revealed himself to Moses when he sent Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, he, he said Moses wanted assurance. He said, well, what should I tell the people th th that your name is? What, what should I say? Who, who, who are you that sent me? And he said, his response to him, I am who I am. In the Old Testament, you were to go through and you were to look at how God primarily refers to himself. It's the word Yahweh. A Hebrew word for the self-revealed name of God. The name declared to be self-existent, sovereign, and totally free from constraint by or dependence on anything outside of him. The aspect in the Old Testament as he reveals himself to his people that is on display throughout the Old Testament is God's holiness. He is separate. He, he is to be treated like no other. He is unique in a class of his own. And, and as he gets laws and guidelines for how God's people are to relate to him, there's certainly a sense of you should keep your distance. Know your place when you're in the presence of God. But in the New Testament, things dramatically change. And the holiness and sacredness of God, they are presupposed, still there. Yet, we're given a new name by which we refer to God. The name is dad. It's father. Father becomes our covenant name with God. Christians become his own sons and daughters, his heirs. Suddenly the stress is no longer on the difficulty of drawing near to God, but on the boldness and the confidence that we have as we approach him. In Ephesians 3.12 it says, in him we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. To those who are in Christ, the holy God the great and mighty becomes a father. How unbelievable. It is believable because the Bible says so. You can call God your dad. We can belong to his family. I started off at the beginning of our service by talking about sort of our universal human need for belonging. One of the places that we see not just the need to belong, but also the power of belonging is in education. 
There's a great deal of research over the years that have supported and shown that, um, that helping students find a sense of belonging in the classroom is so critical. It's so crucial for them to feel like they belong there. Th- and that when they do, the outcomes are tremendous. They're vast. When a student feels like they belong there, there's an improvement in mental health and emotional well-being goes up. There's a boost in self-esteem. There's improved attendance. There are fewer dropouts, increased academic success and achievement. So many positive outcomes when a student feels like they belong in the classroom. Brothers and sisters, the same is absolutely true about us when we believe we belong to the family of God. The implications of that truth are unending. So many. When we believe that we belong to God's family, suddenly we we pay attention to how we conduct ourselves. We imitate our Father. We glorify our Father. And everything that we do, we try to please our Father. Knowing that we belong to God's family changes the way that we pray. The boldness, the assurance, the confidence when we bend our knee and cry out to Him that He will hear us, that He is able to answer our prayers. How we trust Him. That if he's our father, if he has done this, if he's paid that price so that we can belong to his family, how much more should we be able to trust him in all of life when he asks us to do something that we're thinking to ourselves, how can I do that? How can I give that? How can I go there? How can I say that? How can I reconcile this relationship? When God is our father, he loves us and we have a place of belonging, suddenly we can trust him and take him just at his word. And also determines how we relate to each other as family, as brothers and sisters. I mean, the implications, we could be up here all day. Could go on forever and ever. The good news of Christmas is that because Jesus came to earth, you and I can belong to the family of God. That's awesome. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for for that truth, Lord, that you have chosen to relate to us as a kind, gracious, loving Father. Lord, we thank you that we get to call you Dad. We get to belong to your family. Not on our strength or by our ability, Lord, but wholly on the grace of God. Lord, I pray that that truth would settle into our hearts this Christmas. Would we recognize just how powerful that reality is? Lord, and would you help us to act like your children? Lord, if there's anybody here who has not received you or believed in your name, Lord, I pray that you would prompt their heart right now, Spirit. Draw them to yourself. Help them to see the truth. The light came into the world so they could be saved. But we love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.